to be or not to be? That is the question. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Oh, don't be so dramatic. Hello, welcome to Don't Be So Dramatic. I'm Steve Bradley. And I'm Jason B. Moore. And welcome everyone to episode nine. Now today we're bringing you a very special talk and it was done in collaboration with the Off The Record Talks here at the Actors Centre. It's an interview with Hugh Bonneville and it was done on Tuesday this week. Yes, Tuesday. Uh, Paul Clayton, our chairman of the Actors Centre, was our head of chair again speaking to Hugh yes yes and uh, we're about to play that for you but before we do um, we're recording this in the uh, Tristan Bates theatre at the moment and and they've got a production on what we thought we might mention um, called Passing By by Martin Sherman starring James Cartwright and and Rick Mackerum and it's on till the 30th of the month 30th of November at the Tristan Bates and it does say on the back, because I'm looking at the leaflet, it does say that it's the National Theatre's, one of the National Theatre's 100 most significant plays of the 20th century. Ooh. And it's directed by Andrew Keats. So there you go. There you go. Come along to see that. And um, yes, so we're about to play you the Off the Record talk. The next Off the Record is on the 25th of November here at the Actors Centre. And it is with uh, co-founders of the Actors Centre, Clive Swift and Bruce Alexander. And that's at 6.30. So if you want to book your place, uh, it's free, like these podcasts. We like free. <laughs> and it's, uh, you have to book your place by emailing reception at the actors, sorry, reception at actorscentre.co.uk. So uh, that's the 25th, 6.30, and book your place. Okay, right, here it is. Off the record talk, Paul Clayton, Hugh Bonneville. Here we go. Nice to see so many people here on a cold winter afternoon. This is the second of our off-the-record chats, where I get the luxury of chatting to various actors and actresses and directors about their careers and their work. And it's a great pleasure this afternoon to sit with somebody I've known for... We won't go back how far, (laughs) shall we? But uh, a long time... Uh, and, of course, who now figures in all our lives every Sunday evening. <laughs> We're not going to ask about Lady Mary and the pigs. <laughs> but it's my very, very great pleasure to welcome to the Actors' Centre this afternoon, Hugh Bonneville. Um, I always start with a really boring question, but it's the sort of commonality, really, is when was the moment you wanted to do it? When was the moment you decided, I think I'd quite like to do that? I think there were probably two stages. First was uh, realising how much I enjoyed putting on Granny's uh, t- uh, t- twin set from the dressing up. <laughs> I hated out from the dressing up box, not from her wardrobe. Um, <laughs> so really, that all that sort of playing with imagination and storytelling as a, as a kid. And then really, secondly, I think, um, la- well, okay, three stages actually. The National Youth Theatre, um, when I realised for the first time that I was with a group of like-minded people who really passionately loved putting on plays. At school, you know, you've got the bloke who'd rather be out on the you know, hockey field or whatever, um, who's drummed in to, to play a small part or whatever. But here, there was a group of like-minded people from all over the country wanting to do the same thing that I loved. 
So that was a key stepping stone. And then I think finally at university, I was at Cambridge and uh, I'd sort of told myself that I was going to do something sensible like law after I'd finished my theology degree, which was a, a subject I, I loved, but uh, gave me more time to do plays. And uh, then in my second year, I sort, of, I sort of came out to myself and to my family um, that, I, that I really wanted to give it a go. Um, I would rather have you know, had, had a stab at it professionally, I drama training and, and then the, the business, uh, than spend 40 years in a you know, pinstripe suit wondering whether I could have ever done it. And so, so there were those three markers, really, from, from the instinct of enjoying it hugely as a kid to be finding like-minded people at the International Youth Theatre and then um, butching up at university and saying, <laughs> I'm going to run off and join the circus. So it wasn't a decision not to train as such? No, I did train. Well, I sort of tra- I might not be the term at Robert Douglas. Um, okay. <laughs> I was... Uh, uh, I went to do a postgrad course, and to be really honest, it wasn't entirely my cup of tea. I found it very peculiar, having done things like the National Youth Theatre in Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, to be, to be you know, locked away and told you're not ready to go in front of an audience, I found that really peculiar. Um, I'm, I'm one of those actors who comes from the school of of, of learning by osmosis, really, or certainly learning by uh, absorbing other people's work, and rather than being deconstructed and uh, I saw a couple of people really quite destroyed at drama school mm. even in that first term and it felt very strange and, and uh, unseemly to me and in those days the equity card was hard to come by well you'd rather you had to have one okay. so I started devising means of, of trying to get one okay. so I left when I got one. <laughs> oh, right. Are we allowed to ask what the means was you devised? <laughs> They're just, their head office is just down the road. <laughs> and in a similar interview, I tell the story about how I got mine and then wished I hadn't, really. So, are, am I allowed to ask? Yeah, no, it was nothing, nothing uh, nefarious. It was simply a question of maths. I, uh, I worked out that if, uh, if I waited till the... Uh, someone saw me writing letters to the theatres uh, and casting directors and all the rest of it. And someone said, why are you doing that? We don't do that till June. And I thought, well, if you, you know, if there's, have, let's say, five thousand in those days, five thousand kids or students coming out of drama school in June, um, you know, there's a lot more competition than if you start writing in September. So I did, probably foolishly, but as it happened, I wrote my. In those days, you had to write letters, uh, two hundred and something letters uh, to all the theatre companies and producers and that sort of thing, asking for you know auditions for equity card jobs. I think probably. 100 didn't write back. Of the, of the other 100, you know, 50, no, 80 were sort of photocopied, you're on file. Uh, anyway, out of it, I got two auditions. One was for Chittister and one was for Regent's Park, and that's where I ended up going. Okay. Mm. Um, you went to Regent's Park in, in quite a good season. Yes, my, yeah, it was. It was. I, um, I, I, we were doing Romeo and Juliet, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Arms and the Man, and I was understudying a young lad called Ray Fiennes, who, who, uh, who had played a fairy the year before and got his card that mm-hmm. way. I wasn't even. I wasn't even playing a fairy. I was. Uh, I bashed a symbol at the back of the stage, um, and because he was rehearsing as Romeo, uh, this is really the first sort of comment that you'll hear quite a lot as we talk about luck. Okay. And, and fate and fortune and all those things because he was rehearsing as Romeo concurrently I rehearsed for him sometimes as Lysander and the sort of carrot was that I could then have sort of five I think it was five of three matinees and two evenings of his, of his Lysanders so I was able to invite casting to, uh, agents particularly mm-hmm. to come and, and, and see me um, and I did get an agent through that I think yes I did and 
uh, then when we went on tour around Europe, Rafe took over Oberon and I took over Lysander, and and that led to to other uh, bits of luck. So it was a very it was a wonderful season. Dillis Hamlet was uh, who you mentioned earlier was the nurse, and uh, Bernard Breslau, who you may remember <gasps> from the Carry On films, was yeah. bottom. And I have to say he was the best bottom I've ever seen. He was <laughs> a, you know, a huge man. He was sort of six foot six, and you know how gormless he looked. He always played those gormless parts. He got the gold medal at, at, at Rada. He's a really bright, really well-read man. The reason he looked so gormless because he had terrible eyesight and wore really thick bottle-bottom bottle glasses and had to take them off on stage, so he just had this vacant look. Um, but a very sharp man and delightful um, and hila- absolutely hilarious as bottom. Have you any desire to give your bottom? <laughs> I would quite like to, actually. I would, yeah, I would love to play bottom. I think yeah. it's, it's one of those parts. I'm da- coincidentally, I'm doing a, a sort of little documentary for at the moment, on, on Midsummer Night's Dream for, uh, for PBS and, and Sky, uh, they do a, um, a series called Shakespeare Uncovered where they get people who've had a relationship with the play to, to talk to other people who've played parts or academics and look at the historical sources and so on. And I happen to be filming that at the moment. And um, uh, so I interviewed uh, David Williams and, and Sheridan Smith recently and, uh, and talking to some of the academics about the, the troupe that would have performed the play um, in Shakespeare's time, etc., and it be, gradually became, I, think, I thought back over the number of different productions I've seen over the years, and bottom can be played in so many different ways. You know, all of them valid. Mm. That's the great thing about theatre. You can redefine uh, any character uh, within reason um, in each production. So uh, you never know. Could have yeah. a Labrador with it, you know. <laughs> Is the Labrador, does the Labrador have to be in it? Oh, yes, it's contractually okay. connected now. Right. <laughs> Good to know. Um, and a lot of theatre early on. Regent's yep. Park, the National. Yeah, yes, and then the, 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 I did about three or four years at the National, on and off, um, and that again was was the good fortune of the weird things that happen as, as your career sort of to the jigsaw of it all. I'd um, when we were on tour with Rome, with uh, the, the Dream in Florence, one of the directors from the National, Jonathan Lynn, was uh, happened to be on holiday there, and I'd written you know five times for the National and usual. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Jonathan knew one of the cast, a lovely girl by the name of Beverly Hills. Uh, she yeah. actually changed her name from Beverly Williams to Beverly Hills. Yeah. I think she teaches here. Yeah, she's an yeah. amazing yeah. girl. Wonderful, wonderful energy she had. Anyway, she knew. I think it was her who knew Jonathan Lynn and said, "Come and see the show," and he did. And. Uh, Sort of, the word got back to me that they thought I was all right, and uh, I should write to, the, to whoever it was at the casting at the time. And um, I got an audition to, 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 for players cast, and uh, so I went and held a spear at the national for two years. And that's going back to this idea of osmosis, really where I learned a huge amount because I was playing tiddly walk on, you know, not even that, just understudying at the um, in the Cottesloe and uh, in the Littleton. So I'd have acres of time to go and just look, stand in the wings of the other theatres and seeing, I remember seeing Tony Hopkins and Judy Dench as uh, um, doing Anthony Cleo and, and Gambon. I used to love watching Gambon because this was a, a period when the system was you were, you were in a company within the company. So there was the Alan Aikborn company within the overall National Theatre and they were doing a three plays, one, View from the Bridge, in which he was an incredible Eddie Carboni and... Um, 
a, a ridiculously lightweight, hilarious farce called Tons of Money. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I think it was called Tons of Money. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh, he had, yes, he adapted With it, didn't he? From Dimeful, one in the, yeah. yeah. And, um, and also Small Family Business, the first production of Small Family Business. And to go and watch someone like him, uh, you know, from, from utterly spine-chilling pain in, in uh, View from the Bridge to literally making everybody else on stage crack up. I could see him from the VOM, you know, just watching what he did in the opening scene of Small Family Business, desperate to get Diane Bolton to break down <coughs> and succeeding. I mean, so unprofessional. <laughs> um, but, but fascinating to watch. Anyway, just to watch these actors who, are, who one, you know, one admires and soaking in the way they did it, seeing Ian Charleston, bless him, uh, again, in Hamlet. Um, it, was, it was a really... You, know, you, you can't help but have it seep into you. So it was an enormously inf important period for me, just not running before I could walk, really. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are young actors who now look at you and do the same? Oh, God. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I find it very peculiar. Because <laughs> it's a sort of theatre thing, isn't it? I, I mean, think it is a theatre thing. It's perhaps not so much a screen thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's the... It's to do with... Sensing an audience night to night and seeing how really experienced people do it, the you know the rhythms of a scene, the and being able to watch it time and time again—that's yeah. what was really key. Seeing how the, how they'd surf a different audience each night, uh -huh. um, and how they'd place lines, how they'd ride laughs—you know—all those things that you know gradually become instinctive uh, yeah. as, as a theatre performer. I think film and, and TV is probably different because you obviously don't have that live experience. But uh, it was a wonderfully rich time for me as a, as, a, as, a, as a trainee, if you like. And did the RFC follow that? Was it was it one to the other? Uh, it it sort of was and wasn't. I did I did rep. Uh, I went off and did rep um, uh, some plays and rep, and then came back to do School for Scandal, and then auditioned for 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 the RFC in nineteen end of nineteen nineteen. Went from ninety one to ninety three, okay. Stratford, and then the Barbican, and then back to Stratford again. And how would you compare the experience? Well, I grew up absolutely loving the notion of being in a company, uh, in a proper company. Uh, I'd, I'd read all about the Peter Hall Company at Stratford in the 60s and 70s, and that was what made me buzz. And I think probably one of the happiest days or happiest weeks uh, I've ever had as an actor was when, uh, when we were doing four plays in, in 1991. I was in, sorry, I was in four plays in the season. And we'd rehearsed two concurrently, and then we'd open them, and then start rehearsing the third, and then and then open that, and then the fourth. And the, the week when we did all four plays in absolute sequence, so a matinee of one, matinee of two gents, evening of the virtuoso, and the next day we did uh, Tis Pity She's a Whore and then The Alchemist. That was such a buzz, because it was largely the same group of people. And by then, you've, you've created a real company uh, atmosphere, and a shorthand, and all those things that... Uh, being in a company brings you, and you've had the luxury of substantial rehearsal periods, not, yeah. the, not the commercial pressure of two weeks and on. Uh, and that was really satisfying. It helped that, uh, that the productions were pretty good. I think it's uh, in the way that they, the RSC ran in those days, if you were in a flop and you'd opened in April and we were there till Christmas, um, you know, 12th night, I know that year had a tough time, the one that Griff recently yeah. directed. And I, th and I was very lucky to be in a very happy company, all in the swan. And uh, it was a, a, a brilliant sense of company, and that's where I wanted to stay forever and ever. I, I felt really at home there. And <coughs> the, um, it sort of went slightly tits up when um, I uh, came towards the end of, we were doing, uh, Ken Brenner was doing Hamlet, and I was playing Laertes. 
and we did a straight run of it at the Barbican and then took it back to Stratford. And it was, again, he's an amazing leader of, of a company and it was a very happy time. And Adrian Noble, who was running it then, you know, asked, said he wanted to get back to the days of Peter Hall and keep a core company through four or five years. And I thought, this was made for me. And uh, I was offered a play at the National and he said, no, no, don't go do that. I want you to stay and, and, and do this. Anyway, when it came to it, he didn't. So I turned out a job at the National and was suddenly out of my ear. And I felt pretty depressed by that because yeah. I felt the RSC had become home and uh, really thought I'd never, you know, you'd, like you do when you finish any job, you think I'm never going to work again. Um, and in fact, bizarrely, that was when I started uh, getting, uh, got a little break in telly and, uh, and started doing more TV. And, what was the break? Had you done any television until that point? I'd done or? a t- tiny bit in a kids' drama, uh, but no, it was a, a director, a wonderful director called Adrian Shergold, yeah. who was doing a, a strange sort of spoof on The Great Escape called Stalagluft. And uh, it was with Stephen Fry and um, Nick Lindhurst and Geoffrey Palmer, and uh, uh, written by David Nobbs, who wrote Raging Power. Uh-huh. And uh, it was really the, the joke was that the this particular prisoner of war camp was run by really, really old Germans. And so when the, when the Brits started digging the tunnels, the Germans said, can we come too? And, uh, <laughs> and it, it all flipped on its head. Anyway, I had a really nice little supporting part in that. And, uh, and you know, it's the old thing, work breeds work. I was unavailable to go for an audition for something else, Cadfail it was, because we were filming up in the north, and because you're unavailable, suddenly you're more attractive. Yeah. <laughs> as we know from life as worst <laughs> work. And um, and so were they, you know, then I was the offer, you know, I was given this part in, in, in Cadfell, almost sight unseen, which was again a small part, but a really nice one. And so I started to get a TV CV going, uh, and that was that was um, you know back in the early nineties, mid nineties. If I have to put you in one or two camps, method or a get-on-with-it sort of person. <laughs> I think, Are you going to plump for one on the other? I, I think I would say on the whole, get on with it. Okay. Uh, and then occasionally, you know, it can be, it needn't necessarily be a particular project that needs to be method, if you like, or call on experiences that will help you perform a scene. It can be within a, within a sitcom, uh, within, a, within a particular scene or a beat of a scene that you yeah. suddenly need to switch into a different... Vein, usually when you're thinking about quite you know, when you're playing quite tough emotions, uh, obviously. But I think on the whole, um, you know, people talk about how in, in um, uh, the Iceman Cometh, Kevin would be you know texting in the wings uh, and then walk on and give this blistering uh, performance. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, I think I think all actors, well, a lot of actors, uh, come in and out of, 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 of their technique or whatever, and whatever, frankly, whatever works. Well. <laughs> I do remember Dennis Hamlet doing exactly the same, being really shocked that somebody could be in the wings having a chat, and then suddenly she turned literally from that into a full-blown and walked on in the winter's tail, screaming as poor Lyra. And you thought, right, okay, so it is possible, don't you? Um, so, so television's taking off. You haven't done any theatre for a, a while, have you? The Old Vic was the last time. Yeah, the last play I did was Kevin Spacey's first play, uh, which he directed at the Old Vic, uh-huh. which was an extraordinary experience, probably one of the happiest rehearsals I've ever had. And we had standing of it was a play called Cloaca. It was five of us, and uh, we had sort of standing ovations in the previews, and the roof came off every night with laughter and everything. Press night, utter tumbleweed, <laughs> <laughs> complete. I've never known anything like it. I'd even written an email to Kevin two nights before the press night saying, "I've never been in a show apart from the Hamlet, which was sold out in Ken. I've never been in a show that has had such an amazing uh, audience reaction." 
and you know it feels quite sort of nerve-wracking in a way being in something that's going to be a hit it's extraordinary and how wrong was I and um and I remember being in the wings and, and Neil Pearson being up further upstage about to go on I was going <laughs> it was extra- it was amazing and the reviews were so savage on the whole and some of them were deeply personal about you know, along the lines of or the, the subtext being how dare this American come and take over our beloved uh, Quebec. Yeah. So there was, a, you know, there was no question there was an agenda from some people. I'm delighted he's now a CBE. <laughs> um, but it was a very strange thing. And uh, in fact, and so the, you know, the audiences gradually started, we were doing, only doing a three-month run, but they started petering out after about a month. And, um, and yet we'd get letters saying, I can't believe the reviews I've read because this was a, a, you know, a wonderful piece of theatre. Anyway, so that was that's the last time, and it, that's not the reason. The reason I haven't been on stage is not because I didn't enjoy it. Or we, we had a bad time. It was, as I say, an extremely happy time, and, and uh, we became a very good little gang together in adversity. Um, but uh, it's just that other things have taken over, and um, yeah. you know, I, I, I do miss it, and I do, I do miss the rehearsal process in particular. You have produced some theatre, though, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, I saw a beautiful thing in the original production of the Bush and sort of wrote Dear Diary, tonight I've seen a brilliant play and I've seen a star in the making called Johnny Lee Miller. Um, and then I was in it, actually. It, it, it had been a tremendous success, and so they remounted it as, as a sort of smallish tour, a smallish, small-scale tour, um, ending at the Donmar. And it, was, it had such an amazing uh, rush behind it of goodwill, and it was quite groundbreaking at the time, really. Uh, in terms of its, it wasn't a depressing play about being gay. It was a, a really uplifting play about being gay. Um, and I said to Dominic Drumgoole at the Bush, you know, I'd really love to, to try and... I think this has got more legs in it, and I'd love to... And I've always wanted to produce. I produced a bit of Cambridge in a very, obviously, minor way. So I raised the money. It wasn't a huge capitalisation, but I raised uh, 60% of the money, and, and Howard Panter um, of ATG, ATG did the rest. And we put it on the Duke of York's. And it was probably, I said I'd had some, you know, thrills, uh, th- that thrilling week as an actor, but this was probably the most satisfying experience I've had as a, as a, as a working adult in that, that feeling of being utterly passionate about a project and knowing that I wasn't going to be told, darling, you were marvellous, because I wasn't in it. Uh, <laughs> I, having been in it, I then stepped back and, in order to produce it. And, but I was enabling this piece of work to be seen by others and giving, helping others have employment. And that was really special um, because I wanted more people to see this play and, and, and experience it and, and to, to give actors that possibility, that opportunity, to give this writer, Jonathan Harvey, this platform. And he was beginning to have others, you know, around the same time, I think it was Babies was coming, or not something Babies, maybe, maybe Babies, I don't know, not mm-hmm. what it was called, Babies, was coming out of the Royal Court. So it was a real springboard for him, and uh, I just loved it. And uh, to be honest, I really loved the anonymity of being a producer. Um, not that I was, you know, being being pestered by paparazzi in my in my acting life, but there was something about the uh, the enabling of others that I really really enjoyed. I really loved it, um, and we you know we didn't lose our shirts, but we certainly didn't <laughs> didn't buy a, didn't buy a house in the south of France on it. Has that gone anywhere else? Has that interest in producing or being on the development side gone anywhere else? Yes, very much so. I, uh, I, after that, I thought I'm not going to probably produce again uh, in terms of theatre, uh, certainly not for a while, but I would 
And then as I started doing more TV and film and learning more about that, I, I, I really thought I'd love to produce a film. I'd love, okay. to, I'd love to go to my grave having produced a, a play, which I have, and produced a film, and I'm doing that now. Uh, this time I will star in it, and um, we're hoping to shoot next, uh, next September. Um, but, and again, it's the development side of that. I, I'm, a, I'm a writer monkey. I'm not a very good writer, but I do love working with writers. And I do now know a good script from a bad script, I think, on the whole. Um, <clears throat> and I know when scenes work and when they don't. So I'm, I love working with writers. I worked a lot with uh, Chris Luscombe, uh, who's now a director, but mm. he was an actor. And we, we wrote a lot together. Um, hugely un- unperformed works. But... Um, uh, I, and, and I work a lot, uh, cl- quite closely with a writer called Ashlyn Ditter, who's a very fine comic writer. Uh, he created the Catherine Tate show with Catherine. Um, and I've done two of his films now, small, very small films, and this is a slightly larger film. But again, he's, you know, he, he writes well for me, and uh, we have a great collaboration. So, and again, a sense of... Uh, I'm now, having been doing it for 26 years or so, I now know really good... I know who's really good, and I know who's not worth working with. And I've been extremely lucky to work with some incredibly talented people. And I'm very lucky to go to work doing something I love and to work on the whole with people I love. And so the, uh, the idea of being able to pull the, you know, the, the best cinematographer I've worked with and the, you know, the best pool of actors uh, together to work with the, the best costume designers I've worked with, uh, or other ones I get on with best, it's a great thrill. You know, the idea of going to work with people you like, I think, is a tremendous uh, carrot, <laughs> tremendously attractive. So you, you, you're doing all, you're doing very well. You're doing all right, but suddenly it goes ballistic, doesn't it? With Downton and 2012, which happened independently, of course, but come onto our screens together. Yes, they did pretty much. We shot. I think we shot 20, the first series of 2012 just before uh, we shot Downton, and then during series two of 2012, I was literally we having to negotiate days when I could leave Highclere Castle or Ealing Studios and go and shoot 2012 so I was doing one you know Wednesday I'd be doing 2012 Thursday I'd be doing Downton um, which was an you know, incredibly luxurious position in terms of one's craft and one's work um, but it was bloody knackering <laughs> 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 um, and yes no Downton lifted off in a way that no one could ever 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 have anticipated and uh, yeah, a nice problem to have it's not a problem but it's a, it's a, it's it's strange frankly, very strange. I've stopped trying to analyse why, um, beyond the fact that it's quite nice telly on a Sunday night, but it's not just nice telly on a Sunday night for the Brits, which I thought it would be. I thought that would just be it. Um, but the way that it's gone, it's now in 200 countries, even in China, um, it's popular. Um, and I Have you seen yourself dubbed? I haven't. I saw myself dubbed in Italian in Notting Hill, which was very peculiar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, I've yet to see my Mandarin. <laughs> um, has it changed the way you work at all? Or when you get on set and you're behind closed doors, would you say it's absolutely the same? Or I would say from us as a, as a company, because we've now become a company really over four years, four seasons. And you like that? I do, as you know. So, I mean, what I love about doing it is that there isn't, that we're all lead parts. You know, we're, all, we're all sharing the, the mantle of the, of the show and the storylines and so forth. Um, I wouldn't say that our approach to the work has changed. Certainly mine hasn't. Um, we're the same gang... It was very peculiar. I remember going back into the second year and started, the first scene I shot was in the drawing, in the library with uh, Penelope Wilton and, and Maggie. And it was as if we'd not been away. You know, ten months had passed or nine months had passed and suddenly we were there as if continuing the conversation. <laughs> it was very surreal. And yet, between the first series ending, the first series ending shooting, 
when Highclere Castle used to get 60 coach loads a year, apparently, by the time we came back, once it had aired, it was getting 600. You know, you sort of became aware that this thing had grown. And the pressure wasn't on us, the pressure was on Julian Fellows and the producers, etc., to maintain standards. But for us, it was exactly the same approach to the work. The only difference, really, is when we started shooting in familiar locations and having to, the poor producers, having to spend thousands putting up tarpaulins and screens so that the darling, our darling friends with long lenses uh, weren't ruining storylines for the audience, which yeah. they tried to do, obviously, all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, no, the work, the work process is exactly the same as it always has been. We're just, uh, you know, just aw- aware of the, the impact it's having other countries and how nice that you've managed to get that company thing that started all those years ago in the National Youth Theatre yeah you were up yeah. the road and now into something that's incredibly successful but gives you what you as an actor like I think that's true I mean you know I'm not uh, I've never hungered to I never wanted to play Hamlet <laughs> um, maybe because I make quick decisions I don't know but um, <laughs> I, uh, I genuinely prefer I, I, you know I love actors I love the company of actors and I love being in a company of and to see, and I recognise the talent that that, uh, that one is blessed to, sh- to share with you know, that, that I experience on, on something like Downton. I mean, to be in a scene with Penelope and Maggie and uh, and Michelle uh, is just terrific. I mean, they're really terrific actors, and I learn and you learn every day. I learn a lot I mean, from Maggie. Uh, just incredible. Evidently, she's a very good party goer. <laughs> well, they tweeted, and there were lots of people tweeting after the Nationals' fiftieth on oh, really? uh, Sunday night, Saturday night. That people had been that she was the one who was having a whale at the time, <laughs> and everybody was gobsmacked by the oh, Countess really? of Grantham really rocking it up oh, down on the South Bank. Good for her. I mean, you know, she's I guess late seventies now, and uh, seeing her and Shirley MacLaine together was yeah. quite something. Um, <laughs> the stories they, you know, regaled to each other. Um, it was like it was. I've said this before. It was like Stanley meeting Livingston. It was really because yes. they hugged, they hadn't seen each other. Well, Shirley thought they'd never met, but Maggie said we all the way around. They'd met forty years ago at the Oscars or something. But really, it was as if they <laughs> these two wonderful legends uh, meeting yeah. and chatting was um, was just superb. Brilliant. I'm going to open it up to mm. everybody else now. If you're happy with that, uh, I might just repeat your questions. We're um, recording these chats now, and then they're available as podcasts on our new website. Uh, so, in order that your question is heard, uh, I might repeat it. It's not that Hugh in any way has compared <laughs> hearing. Um, there's n- sometimes there's a nasty moment, no matter who's in that chair, when I go, questions, and we're waiting for him to go, today's going to be different, isn't it? Yeah, or it, or it could be like the press night of Cloacca. Okay. <laughs> All right. So he's been through that, so let's not give him questions. Hands, waves, nobody. <laughs> ah, right down the front. They're very good, thank you. One of my favourite comedies recently is Surgeon Comics is 2012. Uh, can you tell me to what extent have you been allowed to, to improvise within it? I mean, how tight is scripted? Is it? Um, 2012 was written by John Morton, who, was, uh, who also wrote a wonderful series uh, that I did on radio. I did a couple of episodes on radio called People Like Us, <laughs> uh, which they then did on TV. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, John is a phenomenal writer-director. Not, not every writer can direct their own material, but John really can. And uh, he is, well, put it this way, every dot, dot, dot is written. Every, every stutter, every, well, not every stutter, but every repeated word. So he's incredibly careful about the words he uses. And if they're repeated or if they're, there's no improvisation, put it that way. So it's, it's really, really hard to learn. <laughs> and uh, I, I, make no, I fully confess that in series two, when I was doing this commuting up and down the M4, 
Um, I, like, it was like being on Bruce's Generation game. I had certain key words written around the set <laughs> so that I could trigger my memory because it was impossible. To, I couldn't learn it. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Um, and I think, and so that the, the way that it's shot, obviously with this sort of faux documentary, you know, there happens to be a camera in the room thing, um, was really meticulously rehearsed. And and it is, it's the old cliche, it's like music when, when an orchestra's, when somebody's out of tune in the orchestra, you hear it and the whole thing doesn't work. And we would run the lines, run it, run it, run it, run the interruptions so that it would appear to be utterly effortless and, and coincidental. But in fact, it was, it was, uh, it was rehearsed within an inch of its life most of the time. Um, but also, he's a brilliant editor of his own material and knows when the rhythm is wrong. And it, it's, I don't want to sound too sort of wanky about it, but it, it, it really is. For, he's forensic. He's obsessional. He's definitely on the spectrum because he just—he's just—he he won't let it. And his, his keynotes are: go faster and don't smile. That was his. Those were his to, to any actor who came in, who'd come in, understandably, as we all do, we want to bring an energy into the room, into the into the uh, onto the set. And some people would bring, if you like, what you might call it, a sort of a, a performance. And he would spend the entire day getting them to strip it down, strip it down, strip it down. So they were just talking. And of course, the thing about these absurd characters is they don't know they're absurd. So anything that gave a hint that they knew they were in a funny scene kills it, like with any good comedy. Yeah. So these guys, you know, these characters take themselves incredibly seriously and therefore we can laugh at them. And, and I think what's nice about the structure of it, which I wasn't sure was going to work at first, was that, that the, your, your central character or the, isn't funny. I mean, Ian Fletcher isn't a funny man. He's not, he's not got... He's got unfortunate things happen to him or he unfortunately turns a phrase or he's emotionally repressed, whatever it might be, but he's not the funny one. It's all the others. So it's a bit like the sort of, if you like, the restoration formula that the guys at the centre aren't the, the, the foppish mad ones. Um, they're, they're the audience's way into the, into the piece. Uh, so, yes, no, it was uh, not improvised at all. <laughs> In the second row there, third row. Right, um, hi, Hugh. Um, is there anything specific training-wise which you've uh, um, found that you carried on um, that you actually use from uh, all those decades ago that you trained anything specific that's really helped you and you keep on using I think so from that term from, from that half a term, 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 term <laughs> what have you remembered um, I think really because of my own love of, of, of classical theatre uh, and that my that's what I grew up watching and I have spent most of the, the theatre that I did was on the whole classical I think my respect for Utter conviction that that you, you naturalise text at your peril. Um, by that I mean by sticking in ums and ers and everything else. Um, as I'm doing that, um, I think in life, yes, we do. But I think theatre, uh, theatre particularly, I'm talking about different demands in TV and film. But I think in theatre particular, you language is, is is music, is musical, of course, and you go from anything from Shakespeare. You can just hear the, the musicality in it, the rhythm in it. There is a whether it's in iambic pentameters or in prose, there is a rhythm to language. And even without without wanting to compare Shakespeare with Julian Fellows, there is a rhythm and a structure in Julian's writing that you tinker with at your peril. It is a there's a muscularity of language, which uh, a formality. And so I think the observation of text that I learned or, or, or was interested in <coughs> drama school is something I've absolutely kept to. I can, like with, with, John's, with John Morton's writing even uh, in 2012, which appears very slapdash, as I say, and appears very made up, there are rhythms within it, 
And if there's one word too many in a sentence or uh, a repetition of a word that's unhelpful, I will always query it. And sometimes he'll say, you're right, that's all, all we're wrong. This is the reason I've got it there. So I've got a very sharp ear for uh, sloppy writing and a very keen ear on rhythm, for, for rhythm and, and timing, I would say. And I think those are the things, for me personally, that I, I was interested in at drama school and, and kept on. Um, my stage fighting is shit. <laughs> in the centre though yeah. um, as, an, as somebody that appreciates classical work um, do you feel that something like Shakespeare is, is uh, as accessible as it was then because um, I feel like there's, there's quite a, a large discussion at the moment where you know, people are, are talking about the idea that you know, we're no longer such oral learners we're visual learners and you know, Shakespeare that uses uh, visual elements like puppetry or, you know, it's, it's something that's so much more accessible and, and these larger, dense texts or these, these big Jacobean, uh, you know, uh, revenge tragedies like Tis Pity, which mm. is an amazing piece, mm. but are not necessarily as easy to... to, um, to do you agree with that? Or what I, th I think there's no question that we, we absorb material so rapidly through visual means now. We're so... We're so hungry for, for data, if you like, that we absorb it through, through many more means than just orally. Um, I personally, as much as I like, a, uh, if you like, the fast food of, 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 of quick absorption of material, I also like a three-course Sunday lunch, and it, that demands some preparation, it demands some attention, and, but, but it's really, really good to chew on. <laughs> and so I think, while that may be true, I think there is, it pays dividends to, to look at classical texts and to find out what's behind them. There's no way that, uh, just interesting, even in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is probably the most accessible of, of Shakespeare's plays, just, I was looking at it the other day for this programme, and I'd forgotten, or I'd never, maybe I'd never even noticed that in the Big Lover's Row, it goes from rhyming couplets to uh, blank verse, and Shakespeare's directing the actor that way. There's something about the rhymes that has a, a not a, not a naivety, but it's about these young people trying to keep a, a sense of decorum, and, and, and then it all starts fracturing, and then it ends up in prose, and they just start. Well, see that doesn't, but but they end up in, in blank verse. They stop rhyming. They just the, the, the gloves come off, and so and half lines and, and, and the rhythms in the pentameter. You know, Shakespeare is directing us now today, from four hundred years ago in a way. I find that utterly thrilling, um, which is why I say I think we tinker with those rhythms and those. I think, that, like all great jazz, of course you can. If, if you know what the rules are, then you can riff. Um, but, uh, but don't just go atonal for the hell of it. <laughs> um, so I think, I think it's true, but I think for those who do want to, who do like language, um, it's worth investing in, because I think it does pay dividends. Uh, that's not to say I don't enjoy avant-garde productions if they're done well. If they're, if, as long as they communicate to the audience that what's at the heart, be it... A, be it a, Tis Pity or Malfi or whatever, you can do them in, you know, sink estates with, with, with uh, you know, heroin addicts, whatever you want to do, I don't know, some extreme that, that, that uh, the author probably hadn't, certainly hadn't thought of. Um, so long as it tells the story and isn't just a directed gimmick and communicates the emotion of what the, the, the author intends. I think that's our duty as practitioners, <coughs> is to interpret uh, what, to the best of our ability via a director 
um, what the author intends, not what um, not the, some uh, tangential statement we won't make. That sounds a bit preachy, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's very good. There's a brilliant article in the Guardian this morning about Polly Toynbee and about drama and about how we have to relate to the spoken word because we all speak to each other much more than we probably do anything else. So that actually English and learning and drama are probably much more valuable subjects than a lot of other subjects that are pushed higher up the curriculum. I think that's very, I think that's very, very true. Having said that, I would just say that you know anyone who could make some of the jokes in Love's Labour's Lost Work deserves <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but of course, yes, you're right. You know that the audience then would have got the topicality of, of those, and uh, I'm all for hacking stuff apart. I mean, Shakespeare, I'm sure, would say, "No, that doesn't work." Been that bit, you know. So I think we should we shouldn't be over reverential, but uh, but when it when it when it does work, don't fix it. sense of rejection that we all have when we go to any audition. You know, I always think of that <coughs> the opening of Tootsie, you know, where, where yeah. Dustin Hoffman's going to all these different auditions and so say, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too whatever, too fat, too thin, and eventually the voice in the stalls from a, you know, the, the young team audition says, we just don't want you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I always say to, to, I think we all experience this, that you know, we, we have to have the thickest of skins and the thinnest of skins, the thinnest of skins in the audition to show what we can to the part and the thickest when we walk out the door and so so the rejection you know that the pain of rejection never leaves you um that's not what you're asking the question is how do you, how do you pick yourself up how do you sustain yourself in between those bouts of, of employment um and for me it was like it was things like coming i remember coming to some some classes here mm -hmm. and, and and not removing yourself from the industry yeah. not thinking they hate me they hate me i'm never going to work again which we all as i say tend to feel somewhere at the back of my mind in the last two weeks of the run. It's never going to happen again. I'm out of work. Um, I think keeping that, uh, that focus, that optimism, that, you know, that puppyish enthusiasm that I think every actor has to have somewhere um, because it is, a, you know, it is a cruel business. Um, uh, I think really it's just a self-belief, without not being arrogant, but just a self-belief that this is what I'm, I want to do. This is what I'm going to continue doing. Uh, and now, after 26 years... I think by the law of averages, I probably will work after this job, but um, because I've managed to do it for you know twenty-five plus years. But um, that's hard. It's hard when you have long periods when you're not. I've been. Ex I am without doubt the luckiest actor I know. I've managed to keep working for most of the twenty-six years, and a lot of I was saying to Paul earlier that my my chums from drama school, who were ten times more talented than any talent I have, they were. I was in awe of three or four who never got the chance to do it and gave up and, and did other things. And my heart breaks nothing for them because they could have really enriched the theatre scene. And I don't know what it is, it's luck, it's you know, all these different factors that come to play. Um, and really, I, I always think it's, it's uh, they say talent will out, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, unless you can get that opportunity to show your talent, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's how you, luck, putting yourself in the way of luck is something I feel is very important so that you don't sit at the phone staring at the phone at home saying ring 
or blaming your agent or anything like that. We are a one-man, one or one-woman business. We are the widget that is produced. We and we are the CEO and the marketing. And I suppose um, putting your way, putting yourself in the way of Lady Luck without being a pain in the neck um, is is one of the ways that you then might be able to get to show your talent. That's a very long-winded answer, but uh, and probably not a helpful one. But uh, that's my view. <laughs> do you think you do you think you managed to do that to put yourself in the right place at the right time? No, no. Well, I think I always think back to the fact that if I hadn't been on tour w- with uh, playing Lysander, mm-hmm. and if Jonathan Lynn hadn't been on holiday and had the night free to come and see me and said, and come and see the show and said, that guy was all right, get him to write to the National. If I hadn't played those parts, etc., etc., uh, it yeah. all leads back. It all, it all, you know, fate just connects all the dots. The weirdest one was I was, um, uh, I. I'd been at the National holding, you know, holding a spear for a few years and playing tiddly parts, and I went off to do rep, and I happened to come back. I think I, I had to go and see a bank manager or something, so I wore a suit when I was back in London. I'd been, I was up in Colchester, I came down to London, and I put on a, my, my, my one suit and went to meet a mate at the National for a cup of tea. Um, and I'd never, I never wear, you know, never wore suits and that sort of thing. And Peter Gill passed me in the corridor and he said, Hello, what are you doing here? And I thought, Seeing a mate, he said, "You're wearing a suit," mm-hmm. and uh, he said, "I've never seen you like that before." And the next day, he asked me to go on an audition and to play this particular character in *Juno and the Paycock*, a terrible production, but uh, <laughs> um, or, or, or rather unsuccessful production. <laughs> but uh, playing this character, um, Mr. Bentham, who clearly wore a suit, um, so that was just bizarre. I mean, you know, the, the casting department would never have thought of me, but he happened to see me wearing one. <laughs> so I know. Right, that's, <laughs> that's probably Peter Gill ringing up now yes. to say that, uh, you know, I'm just heard you talking about Gina and the baby. Um, just there. Yes, hello. Um, I'm curious to know about your relationship with your agent or agents. How important that was, or was it more luck? Uh, I think early on it was not as important. I, well, the assumption that my agent won't download this punk podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think I look uh, over the years. I, I've been with the same agent for twenty years, twenty-one years, right. uh, and we have become very, very close friends and collaborators. Uh, but I would say, cynically, I employ an agent in the same way that I employ an accountant. Yeah, they are not there. They are. I, I know too many actors, particularly when starting out who think that the agent, that they don't want to trouble the agent, that they, that they are so lucky to have an agent, um, uh, which of course one is in a way, but to depend on the agent as a sort of source of nourishment um, uh, or um, uh, is, is, uh, is, I think, can be misguided. It goes back to that, being pa- that thing about being pa- don't be passive. Don't think that they are going to sort the world out for you. They are brilliantly useful, of course, and, uh, but... That if you're being really cynical, they're there to negotiate the contract. And at times they can help facilitate you getting that foot in the door and into the room to show your own talent, but they're not going to provide you with the talent. That's got to come from you. Um, and that's not being just, you know, I don't mean to, that's in no way being negative about agents because they are they're important. They protect our rights, our interests, um, but don't rely on them. Um, as the there is that thing, isn't there? Some people, when they get an agent, when they're young, and there's that big scrabble. 
that an agent is seen as the be all and the end all. That having done that, people go oh, yeah, and relax not. and then stop chasing things. That's right. I don't think you should ever do that ever. Um, and I certainly don't. I mean, I, the number of times I'll ring yeah. my agent and, and say, you know, I've heard about this project or that project. Absolutely. What do you think? Would I be, that be right? And she'll now, because of our relationship, say, I think you'd be mad too, but let's have a chat or whatever. <laughs> Um, and uh, their support is, of course, invaluable. And I've made some, a couple of times, made some really bad career choices. And um, and, and she's never she's never scolded me. She said, no, or I told you so, or anything like that. Um, but uh, they are they are. I've got to put, I'm going to say it. They're useful tools, <laughs> but they are just another tool in the in the in the in the box of equipment that you have. Um, they're not to be relied on. Yeah. Hi. If um, for screen work, if you have very little notice in terms of when you've got the lights and when you're shooting, mm. um, do you have kind of a specific kind of shorthand method of prepping? Or um, well, bearing in mind that that in in TV and film you're doing a maximum. Well, it depends which sort of TV or film, but something like that we might shoot five or six pages a day. On 2012, we might shoot 18 or 20, which is quite a lot. And on, on soaps, like Coronation Street, whatever, you might shoot mm -hmm. 25, 30. Um, so you'd quickly, very quickly, build up a mental muscle. So my short-term memory is very, very good. My, uh, but, but having not done theatre for a long time, um, I mean, put it this way, I can remember stuff from theatre from 20 years ago, but I can't remember what we shot last week, because it, it's a very shallow memory trace. So you you quickly learn, or have to learn, a facility to take absorb stuff very quickly. Particularly if you're doing a f filming in America on TV shows, which I've, I've done a couple of bits over there, and they're constantly rewriting, um, every, literally every day. Their, the script that you had at the beginning of the week bears no relation to the one you're performing in front of an audience on Friday night, um, usually because it's not very good. And, um, uh, and so there's constant rewrites. So you're so on the one hand, you're, there's no point learning it very deeply because you know it's going to change tomorrow. On the other hand, you'd have to because you're performing it in front of an audience and five cameras. Um, so, uh, so yes, the, the, I always learn it three-dimensionally. I cannot sit and learn like that. I have to walk around. Mm -hmm. That's why I always find the best way of learning lines is, is by rehearsing um, because it begin, you begin, your brain begins to equate uh, a sort of map of the words with uh, the geography of, you know, this is the line I hand over the cup of tea because the line is I'm handing you a cup of tea, whatever. So by... by Putting it in three dimensions, it begins to bed in. Um, the strangest one I had was I did a, a one-man show on telly, uh, a, a one-man version of Diary of a Nobody, um, which is a, a Victorian character called Mr. Pooter. Mm -hmm. And it was two hours uh, of, of material. And I said, I, I really, you know, I just have to, I just have to go out and I spend a month learning it. I've just got to learn it. It's like a, like a stage show. And the only way I could do it was by walking through the woods near where I live. Um, and it was very strange when I came to do it in front of the camera. I mean, sometimes I had an autocue, which I hated using because you can always tell when someone's using an autocue. Mm -hmm. So I'd look through the autocue, but know that I could sense the words in my per peripheral vision as a sort of safety net sometimes. But it was really peculiar because as I do a particular se sequence, I could remember the tree I passed <laughs> as, as that section went into my head. So there's something, about, I definitely, it's a, it's a muscle I must have got to use when doing a lot of theatre, the, mm. the three-dimensionality of it. I, I find it very hard to sit and do that. Do you learn night by night beforehand, or do you stock up on a Sunday for the week? Yes, sort of, yes, yes. I mean, in something like dance, and, uh, I, 
I tend to try and learn, get very familiar with the week ahead because that doesn't the script doesn't change, um, and then uh, look at it the night before and then on the set. And it's not laziness to say I don't always want to know it absolutely backwards, inside out, and no, all that, true, yeah. because you want I do. Otherwise, if you start. The danger about le learning in advance in three dimensions is that you've decided exactly what you're going to do, stuff the other person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's not good. So to be, to be utterly familiar with it and utterly on top of it, and yet alive to the possibility of what's going to come at you in the room on the set, because the director would have got their ideas, the, you know, your other your co-stars will have different ideas, and then ultimately you create this, you mould this, this thing that neither, none of you had anticipated, hopefully, and it's even better than the sum of all the parts. That's what you're always aiming for, I think, and to be alive to that. Um, on the other hand, there's that wonderful Michael Caine uh, piece, which I, I learned more about screen acting from, from watching Michael Caine piece. On, uh, it was a BBC Two thing, I think, a masterclass with a very young Celia Imrie and these things. Um, and he talks about film acting in that and about picking an eye and, and not blinking too much unless you're trying to you know, express a nervous character and, and knowing when you're going to take a smoke and a cigarette because of continuity and all that sort of thing. All these basic ground rules were are absolutely invaluable. Um, and, I, and I completely subscribe to them. I think it's you know, wonderful to, to have shared that simple advice with, 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 a, with a larger audience. Um, but uh, I think and one of the, the key things he said was be utterly prepared but be completely fresh to accept new, new ideas on the day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Any more questions? Yeah, here we go. If you're playing a part where you're playing, say, the younger version or the older version, This is probably a good uh, story to finish on, actually. Um, it's, you're referring to Iris, a film I did with Jim Broadbent uh, in, 19, in the year 2000, 2001, um, which was about Iris Murdoch and her decay into Alzheimer's. And the story cuts back and forth between Iris and, and John Bailey, her husband, as, a, as an older couple, Judy Dench and Jim Broadbent, and then, 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 and then when they were at Oxford in the early days, when they started their relationship. <clears throat> and that was me and Kate Winslet. And John Bailey, who's, I believe, still alive, certainly was then, um, has a very particular voice, which I didn't... I knew he had a stammer because it was referred to in the script. So Richard Eyre, it was a very sort of delicate process because the, the, the producers wanted a big name to play the young John Bailey. And Richard Eyre said, I think it's... I think Hugh Bonneville's right. And the producer said, Hugh, who I've never heard of him, they wanted some very peculiar A-list names who would have looked very peculiar. Um, anyway, so the, the bottom line was that Richard said, um, he rang me up, having, he, he, I've gone around to see him, and he showed me a picture of the young John Bailey, and he said, can't you see the likeness? And I saw this bald, young bloke with sort of tortoiseshell glasses, and, you know, nothing like him at all, as far as I was concerned, but he was convinced. Anyway, he rang me <clears throat> about a week later and said, I've got to ask you to do something, which I would never ask an actor, but I just please trust me, it will work, this will come out good. He said, I want you to come and audition at the read-through. Um, and I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, the producers are flying in from America. And uh, I said, right, okay. So everybody else has been cast apart from me for this part. And they want to see what, who is this Hugh Bonneville that uh, Richard's been banging on about. So <clears throat> I said, fine, well, can I have 
could I need to have some time with Jim because how's Jim playing it? You know, if I'm playing a younger version, we need to have some similarity. And it's, well, the trouble is, Jim's shooting the gangs of New York in mm. Italy, and so he can only he can only fly in for the for the actual read. He's arrived coming from Heathrow to the read through. I said, all right. Well, can I have some time with Kate then? Can I have a session with Kate? Now, Kate's she's doing whatever she was doing. So I turned up. I mean, at least I'd worked with Judy in the past, so at least I felt relatively, you know. Uh, One's always in peanut warfare anyway, but uh, at least he knew she wasn't going to be uh, <coughs> worrisome. And uh, so it was in Richard Eyre's kitchen. And then Jim arrived, luckily five minutes early. So I said, how are you doing? How are you doing, John Bailey? <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, well, haven't you heard the tape? Uh, and, I said, um, <laughs> and I said, tape, what tape? He said, oh, yes, yeah, so he's, got, he's got rather a high-pitched, you know. And I said, what do you, tell me, tell me, tell me. And then in the, I could see these feet coming down the stairs into the kitchen of these galumphing producers. And... Um, uh, anyway, I, my character started off, and then and then Jim picks up, and so gradually during this read through, I I started picking up his tones and rhythms, and uh, but by the time I was halfway down the A3, back to my house, they phoned and said you've got the part, so that was fine. But then the next stage of it was there was no rehearsal time for us as as a quartet. It was a tiny budget film, and Jim and uh, Judy were shooting all their material first, and we overlapped by a day, I think, to shoot some water tank sequences. And, um, and then it was me and Kate. So after about a week of uh, Richard, I'm really sorry, there's no time to re rehearse together. Um, so I said, well, can I, can I at least see some footage of what Jim's doing? He said, unfortunately, Miramax are being, you know, they, they won't let me show anybody anything. And I said, this is ridiculous. We're trying to collaborate on a project, and I'm meant to look and sound like Jim Orbit. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he said, look, I said, don't tell anyone. And one day he... He, he, uh, he smuggled out a VHS tape of the days of the day's rushes. It was arrived in a you know, brown envelope at my house. He said, here's yesterday's rushes. And I stuck it in the machine. It was six minutes of rushes, and five minutes was a close-up of Judy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, there was one shot of Jim Broadbent walking across a car park uh, with a trolley, with a supermarket trolley. And so I sort of based my entire physicality <laughs> on that. And Richard then phoned me during the edit and, and said, uh, it's, he said, today was the first time I, put, I juxtaposed the two eras in the edit suite. And I was, he said, I was so scared of you know, opening my eyes. And it, he said, all I can say is it works, it's fine. We've got away with it. How <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, so that's the question of, um, of getting on with it rather than method. <laughs> Uh, Downton finishes this series on Sunday night, doesn't it? And then our yes. evenings are bereft. Until Christmas Day, yeah. Till Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah. More next year? Yes, I think we're starting again okay. in, in February. Yeah. And you've got a birthday coming up, I hear. Yeah, well, yes, yes, the yes. big one. Big on Sunday, a big one. Oh, gosh, we've well researched. I yes. know, there you go. You <laughs> I am pretending it's not happening. All right, well, <laughs> I'm sure we'll, everybody will join me, with me in wishing you a very happy birthday thank for Sunday <laughs> and in saying a huge thank you for giving up your time to come along this afternoon. No, thank, you. thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that talk with Hugh Bonneville. It was really interesting, wasn't it? There was yeah. some really good, valuable information and a good insight into that. Yeah, um, and also what a nice chap, which is really yeah, nice. Yeah, really nice, nice guy. But yeah, no, good information. And yeah, he, 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 he spoke to us in a ni good way without being patronising and just gave, gave it, as it as it is. And that was really nice to hear that. And that's good, you know, good advice when you're starting out or when you're 
still knocking on the doors. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah, and it's good it's to hear from him as well. It's kind of yeah. inspirational in a bit, in a way, because it's like encouraging, I suppose, isn't it? Hearing other mm. people's stories. That's why we do these podcasts. It's well, absolutely. To get that it's always, especially when someone sort of his level now, you know, because of Downton Abbey, it's such a huge success. It's nice to, you know, to hear the beginnings. Yeah. So that's always Before good Downton, for, yeah. for everybody. And, um, and that was, yeah, it's good. So um, if you've got a second, it would be really good if you could rate us on iTunes if you enjoyed this show and you enjoyed the talk. Um, rate us on iTunes out of five stars. And obviously, um, so we can keep bringing these talks to you for free. And just a reminder, the next off the record is uh, with Clive Swift and Bruce Alexander on the Monday, the 25th of November at 6.30. And that'll be, again, Paul Clayton um, interviewing those two chaps. And to register for your place for that talk, you have to email reception at actorscentre.co.uk. And uh, if you want to subscribe to us, you'll get that talk sent to your iPad, iPhone or iPod, and uh, we'll have that talk for you. You can also follow us on Twitter, can't they, Jason? They certainly can. And I always forget what it is, but it's it's at, at DBS. The <laughs> podcast. Oh, I said it right for the first time. Did it at DBSD podcast. So follow us on Twitter and you get the updates on our future guests and when those talks go live. Okay. Thanks everyone for listening. I'm Steve Bradley. And I'm Jason B. Moore. Don't be so dramatic. Bye.